also would mention that uh, the topic of the sermon over the next moments is heavy and uh, is not for um, the faint of heart. And, and while I think every adult ought to be here uh, in wisdom, parents who are with us may want to uh, make a decision that's best, best for your family. For what it's worth, my 10-year-old is in the nursery helping out with mom um, this morning, although he was free to be here as well. So you make a decision that's right for you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I want to pray for pastors right now. I want to pray for pastors who are slumbering on this issue, just not even awake. And I pray too for pastors who are awake but are silent. And the only reason I do that is because it's only because you woke me up and opened my mouth a couple of years ago. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, who made you to differ? And the answer to that question is you and your grace made me and made our church to differ. I'd rather do just about anything than take up this topic right now, but I'm not free to. And so... May you take this burden and make it a wonderful blessing. Lord, teach us about how much you love this world that you have created and those in it. Teach us, Lord, about the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. This coming Tuesday will mark 42 years since the historic handing down of the Roe versus Wade decision. For 42 years, it has been the law of the land in the United States of America that a woman has the right to end the life of her unborn child for virtually any reason at all up till the time of birth. From the founding of our nation until January 22nd, 1973, unborn human beings had rights in this nation. Today, the unborn have few, if any, rights. In an exhibition of the most twisted logic imaginable, nearly 60 million Americans have been legally slaughtered because of their size, their level of development, their geographic location, and their degree of dependency upon another human being. An ethicist by the name of Stephen Schwartz developed an acronym some years ago that summarizes what I just said. If you can remember the word SLED, S-L-E-D, you have a, you have a powerful argument on your hands against elective abortion, SLED. S, size. L, level of development. E, environment. D, 
degree of dependency, SLED, S-L-E-D. It's airtight logic, and I commend it to you. The logic alone doesn't rescue babies. It is a part of the battle. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10.5 tells us that we ought to destroy arguments, and this is one way to do that. There is some indication that abortion nationwide is on the decrease. Some indication. But the numbers, and the numbers are babies. The numbers of babies that are being killed is simply still too high to fathom. American statisticians on both sides of the issue report that about half of all pregnancies in this nation are considered unwanted. Half are considered unwanted. Now, out of the half that's considered unwanted, almost half, that's four out of ten, are terminated by abortion. That means that 21% of all pregnancies nationwide end in abortion. Is this a problem? It depends. To quote former pastor and author David Platt, if the unborn is not human, no justification for abortion is necessary. But if the unborn is human, then no justification for abortion is adequate nor exists. If the unborn is not human, no justification for abortion is necessary. If the unborn is human, no justification for abortion is adequate. About 1.4 million abortions still occur in this country every year. You've heard this statistic in past years, but about 3,700 abortions every day. One abortion every 23 seconds. 100 abortions during the time it takes to preach this sermon. We owe it to these little ones to reflect on this question, don't we? What is a human being? That's the million-dollar question. What's a human being? Because if the unborn's not human, then no justification of abortion is necessary. We're just wound up about an issue that really doesn't amount to much. It's a private decision. But if the unborn is human, however... No justification can possibly exist. So let's ask the question, and let's answer the question. What is a human being? If you look on your notes, I offer a definition. On this side of Genesis 3, a human being is a creature made in the image of God, possessing visible and invisible dimensions, utterly unique, conceived in sin and therefore under the curse of God's wrath, yet capable of experiencing redemption in Christ by God's grace. Now, if you're hoping that we could put the cookies on the bottom shelf this morning and offer a a definition of human being that was a little less complicated, you, you have my sympathies. I know that's not a particularly simple definition, but we human beings are complicated, aren't we? We are complicated people. I'm not sure there's much help for this. 
Human beings are glorious, material, immaterial, intricate, sinful, redeemable persons. That's who we are. And so I'd like to offer a few comments on the definition and then allow that definition to inform our second point today. First thing about this definition, this definition tells us is that to be a human being is to be a creature made in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 to 27. We've heard it appropriately twice today. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Human being is a creature made by God in the image of God. The image of God. We say that a lot, but what does it mean? Well, the poetry in Genesis 1.26 gives us at least one other idea. It's the word likeness. Genesis 1.26 says image and likeness of God. So the image of God is the likeness of God. Can we say more? Yes, we can. You just need a thesaurus. A human being is a reflection of God. A human being is a picture of God. Human being is a visible representation of God. A human being is a copy of God. Human being is a dead ringer for God. Human being is the spitting image of God. A human being is a chip off the old block of God. Hmm. Now, do you want to be responsible for determining when a human being begins to bear the image of God? Do you want to be responsible to make that choice? I suggest we tread lightly and answer conservatively. Secondly, our definition says that a human being possesses visible and invisible dimensions. What does that mean? It means that there's a part of us that you can see, and then there's a part of us that you can't see. Genesis 2-7, if you turn in your Bibles to Genesis 2-7, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and a man became, the man became a living creature. Now, in our second point today, we'll begin to see why this Verse Genesis 2 7 is of such shattering importance as we do soul care and counseling with people. Um, but for right now, all I'd like to do is simply point out that Genesis 2 7 tells us that a human creature is comprised of material and immaterial. What's the recipe for man making? Dust plus breath. See that in verse 7? Dust from the ground, breath from our God. Dust plus breath. That's what we are. We are one part creation and one part creator. 
human be beings possess a visible and invisible dimension. Third, human beings are utterly unique. Utterly unique. Psalm 139. We heard this already today, beginning in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Human beings are utterly unique. God knits babies together in their mother's womb. God does that. God makes babies. Gender, ethnicity, ability, story, God does that. And he's really good at it. You're going to stop that? Don't do it. Human beings are utterly unique. Fourth and final aspect of this definition of humanity. Human beings are conceived in sin and therefore under the curse of God's wrath, yet capable of experiencing redemption in Christ by God's grace. This is how the Bible fits together. This is really neat. The same David who announced to God, I praise you for I'm fearfully, wonderfully made, Psalm 139, verse 14, he also confessed to God in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. Now, babies are really cute. I love babies. I really do. They're fearfully and wonderfully made. But they are selfish little sinners, aren't they? Yes, they are. On this side of the fall, it's true. The EFCA Statement of Faith says in no uncertain terms in Article 3, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice. By nature and by choice, alienated from God and under his wrath. That's true. That's what the Bible says. Nevertheless, notwithstanding, human beings are also capable of experiencing redemption in Christ by God's grace. Again, the FCA Statement of Faith serves us very well, captures this marvelously. Through God's saving work in Jesus Christ, we can be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. So what's a human being again? A human being is a creature made in the image of God, possessing visible and invisible dimensions, utterly unique, conceived in sin, therefore under the curse of God's wrath, yet capable of experiencing redemption in Christ by God's grace. Where does that leave us on Sanctity of Life Sunday on the abortion question? Well, therefore, point number two, therefore, abortion is a full frontal 
assault. It's an assault. It's an assault on the image of God. An assault on the artistry of God. An assault on the soul of mankind. And an assault on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where the definition leaves us. We'll take each of these in turn. First, abortion is a full frontal assault on the image of God. Following words are from author and activist Randy Alcorn. You may know Randy Alcorn from his books on heaven or on money. Uh, They pale in comparison to what he's written on the, the right to life issue. Randy Alcorn writes the following. Abortion is Satan's attempt to kill God in effigy by destroying little ones created in God's image. If some pro-choice arguments momentarily cloud and eclipse what you know to be right, realize that that is simply because the devil is behind the persuasive rhetoric of the pro-choice movement. We are dealing here with a force of darkness that will bitterly resist every effort to combat it and that requires earnest and sustained prayer and alertness to the spiritual battle. Amen. Randy Alcorn, amen. Abortion is not ultimately about babies. Abortion is about God. And babies are made in the image of God. Therefore, abortion is a full frontal assault on the image of God. Secondly, abortion is a full frontal assault on the artistry of God. Full frontal assault on the artistry of God. Prior to his own martyrdom, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a couple of books. One of the books he wrote was on Christian ethics. And in the section related to abortion, he said this. Destruction of the embryo in the mother's womb is a violation of the right to live which God has bestowed upon this nascent life. To raise the question whether we are here concerned already with a human being is merely to confuse the issue. The simple fact is that God certainly intended to create a human being, and this nascent human being has been deliberately deprived of his life, and that is nothing but murder. End quote. Bonhoeffer has earned the right to speak. He's right. God plans and sketches and composes and designs babies just as they are. And he loves them just as they are, even in disability. God himself declares in Exodus 4.11, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Answer, yes. Yes, it is even babies with disabilities. In fact, especially babies with disabilities. (laughs) So we learned in our study in the Gospel of John, chapter 9, one year ago, God, he doesn't just knit babies. God knits babies with disabilities together in the womb so that the works of God can become manifest in them. John, chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. 
the horrific practice of eugenic abortion. Abortion because of the presence of a disability in an unborn child cannot be defended from the pages of Scripture. For example, still 90% of Down syndrome babies are aborted every year in our nation. 90%. Eugenic abortion, abortion because of the presence of a disability, is a holocaust within a holocaust. And nothing but the grace of God in Jesus Christ is going to change that. Nothing. It's a full frontal assault on the artistry of God. Third, it's a full frontal assault on the soul of mankind. Abortion is a full frontal assault on the soul of mankind. I told us we were going to return to Genesis 2-7, so let's do that real briefly for this application point. Genesis 2-7, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. What's the recipe for man-making? Remember, dust plus breath equals life. Wonderful and easy and vivid to remember. Dust plus breath equals a living creature. Now what I'd like to do is zero in on that last phrase in Genesis 2-7, namely a living creature. ESV, translation I normally like, says a living creature. Just to get nerdy for a minute, the Hebrew word underneath it is nefesh. Nefesh. Know what nefesh means? Soul. Soul. A nefesh is a soul. So when we do soul care, counseling, cure of souls, we are wise to recognize in a broader way that there is a physical as well as a non-physical dimension to the person that we seek to assist who's in front of us. And I don't know about you, but I'm a guy that likes my theology tidy. I like little hermetically sealed boxes, and I want the Bible to say something the same way every time so that everything is clear to me, because that's how I live my life. But Genesis 2-7 refuses to be tamed on this score. It is plain as day. Majority of the time, when God uses the word soul in the Bible, it does refer to the immaterial part of us, our thoughts, our feelings, our observable behaviors, our desires, Normally, that's what soul or spirit, they're interchangeable in Scripture. Most of the time, that's what soul means. It's a synonym for the immaterial, the invisible part of us. But the first time the Holy Spirit sees fit to use this word soul, and that's here in Genesis 2-7, it's a summary label for the essence of what it means to be human. What's a soul? It's dust plus breath. It's just a sidebar. That means that when you seek to do soul care with someone in your kitchen or at Caribou or out in Fellowship Hall in 10 minutes, whatever you're doing to counsel another person, whether they are suffering or depressed or anxious or addicted or angry, you want to ask them a whole bunch of questions in love to try to get to know them better. But one question pretty high on the list, several questions, ought to do with their physical bodies. Ask them about their diet and their sleep habits and their exercise patterns. The last time they saw a medical doctor. Dust plus breath equals a soul. 
Now, the implications for the abortion issue are profound. Genesis 2-7 says a soul is dust plus breath, and that means that abortion is a full frontal assault on the soul of mankind. Finally, abortion is a full frontal assault on the gospel of Christ. Abortion is a full frontal assault on the gospel of Christ. When we affirm this, we need to be clear that God owes salvation to no one. Salvation is by grace alone. And because it rests on grace alone, it is possible for the unborn to be saved. Not just possible, foregone conclusion that they will be saved. Now, Psalm 51.5 affirms that we are conceived in sin. Not just born in sin conceived in sin. So the unborn stand in need of a savior. And to lose a child, no matter how it happens, prior to birth, is simply one of the greatest aches a parent can know. And I don't need to tell some of you that. However, salvation isn't through works. It's through grace. And if there were more time, it would be my joy to make the biblical case for infant salvation right now. But I want to let it rest on one text in particular and maybe one other one in view of the time. One scripture along these lines. And what do I mean by infant salvation? Here's exactly what I mean. All, not just some, all of the unborn pass immediately from this life into the very presence of Jesus Christ. Theologically, unborn children are among the elect of God. One scripture along these lines will suffice. When King David's child dies, 2 Samuel 12, 23, David says, he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. He shall not return to me. The unborn are saved by the grace of God. 2 Samuel 12, 23. The unborn are the elect of God. Believe it. Believe it. Nevertheless, abortion is still a full frontal assault on the gospel of Christ. It's an act of unbelief. Not simply against creation, but it flies in the face of redemption. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 14, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus said that, he was merely rebuking his disciples for blocking up the pathway to get to him. Imagine how hot Christ's blood boils when he sees doctors dismember little babies 
whom he created and for whom he died. Make no mistake, abortion is a full frontal assault on the gospel of Christ. Okay, where do we go from here? How then should we counsel those involved in the assault? Brings us to our final point this morning. I'd like to touch down on five applications with regard to counseling and soul care for those who have participated in the assault of abortion. How then should we counsel those involved in the assault? Five closing applications. Understand them. Appreciate them. Empathize with them. Confess your sins to them. Point them toward Christ. Say those five again. Understand them. Appreciate them. Empathize with them. Confess your sins to them. Point them toward Christ. Just a couple of comments under each here. Understand them. Love is our goal. Always. Love God, love others. But biblical love, it's not biblical if it's devoid of the knowledge of your beloved. Um, what makes God's love for the world so stunning is that he knows it so thoroughly and yet still loves the world. So if our knowledge of those that we desire to do soul care for, if our knowledge or our minds are empty, our love will be cheap and bargain basement. But if our knowledge of the one that we are seeking to care for is full, then our love, our counsel, stands the chance to become deep and comprehensive and wise and mature. Proverbs 18.13 says, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and his shame. The first thing we ought to do to come alongside someone who's been involved in the, the assault of abortion is to seek to understand, dive into their life, and learn them for the purposes of loving them. Secondly, appreciate them. Appreciate them. Philippians 4.8 carries with it a command that is revolutionary if we would apply it to those involved in the assault of abortion. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. People that I know and have spent slow time with that have had elective abortions, part of what makes the conversation work is that I appreciate them so much. Don't focus on what's wrong. Focus on what's right. It'll grease the skids for other conversations. Third, empathize with them. Empathize with them. Colossians 3.12 commands us, commands us to put on as God's chosen ones holy and compassionate hearts. Romans 12.15 tells us to weep with those who weep. Jesus looked out on the crowds who were harassed and helpless 
and his heart broke for them because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Empathize with them. There's a tone to counseling. It's not preaching. It's not teaching. It's discussion. It's listening. Fourth, confess your sins to them. Here we are wise to recall the speck and the plank. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 promises us that there is no temptation that's overtaken someone in abortion that's not common to someone else who's never participated in abortion. Our sufferings and our sins, they're not different in kind, just different in degree. We are not so different. There's a hair's breadth difference between you and someone else whom you love who has participated in abortion. Confess your sins to them. And by the way, going public is spectacular. If you know uh, hip-hop artist Lecrae, it's all over the internet. He went public with an abortion that he participated in in the year 2002 after he got saved. It's wonderful. It's, it's light. It's helpful. It's very helpful. Fifth, point them toward Christ. Point them toward Christ. What are we talking about here? Specifically, the new covenant is like, a, it's a really good deal. It's a really good setup. I, I developed these five Ps of the new covenant when I was teaching the kids during uh, the, the musical, summer musical. I had Monday morning, Tuesday morning, anyway, each morning of the week, I had a different thing that I could teach them, and it was all on the promises of God. And I thought, well, the greatest promise is, is Jesus, and it's the pardoning of our sins. But then these other Ps began to suggest themselves. So let me offer you five Ps that you can bring to someone who might need to hear from you this week. What do you tell someone who has committed the sin of abortion? First of all, tell them there's pardon in Christ. Pardon for sin. There is no pit so deep that Christ is not deeper still. This is not the unpardonable sin. No, it's not. There's pardon in Christ. Secondly, remind them of the presence of Christ. The presence of Christ, which is of unspeakable comfort to those who have been involved in abortion. Jesus doesn't abandon them. He's right with them. The presence of Jesus Christ, right at their side. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil that I have done or will do or done to me. Why? Thou art with me. Third, the power of Christ. Remind them of the power of Christ for resurrection. Not just for the life of their little one, okay? But for their own life. Resurrection from ashes. The ability to comfort others the same way they've been comforted by God. The power of Christ. Fourth, remind them of the pleasure of Christ. The pleasure of Jesus Christ. This is oil for the wounds of people who have been involved in this. <clears throat> Remind them not just power, but pleasure in Jesus. Psalm 16:11 promises, In your presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures evermore. Fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. Remind them of the pleasure of Jesus. Finally, 
Remind them of the people of Jesus. People of God. The people of Christ. That they're not alone. Nothing. Nothing anyone has done could possibly keep them at arm's length of this congregation. If we will confess our sins, there is forgiveness full and free in the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ covers us from all of our sins, and then we have fellowship with one another. Remind them of the pleasure and the people of Christ. Okay, if the unborn is not human, no justification for abortion is necessary. If the unborn is human, no justification for abortion is adequate. What's a human being? On this side of Genesis 3, a human being is a creature made in the image of God, possessing visible and invisible dimensions, utterly unique, conceived in sin, therefore under the curse of God's wrath, yet capable of experiencing redemption in Christ by God's grace. Therefore, abortion is a full frontal assault on the image of God, the artistry of God, the soul of mankind, the gospel of Christ. How then do we counsel? Just know there's a massive difference in the flavor between point one and point two. You feel that? You preach point two. You live point three. Okay? How do we operate with? How do we do family with? How do we work alongside and serve alongside? Well, understand them. Appreciate them. Empathize with them. Confess your sins to them and point them toward Jesus together. Next week, I hope you make plans to attend the casting of the 2020 vision of Mount Evangelical Free Church. It's really been a, a decade in the making. Um, and by God's grace, we'll unveil it next week. Right now, let's pray. Father, there's more to counseling, but there's not less. We want to become competent to counsel in this church. So may we understand one another, appreciate, empathize with, confess our sins to, and as appropriate, seek to correct and offer the full blessing of the gospel. Father in heaven, I, I do pray that this would be a new day uh, for this church. That we would be a place and a family where all suffering and all manner of sin is, is really expected. On this side of Genesis chapter 3, just expected. But because of the cross of Jesus Christ and because of the empty tomb, we have resources. May we be a church pulsing with life, the protection of life, the forgiveness of those who are within our sphere of influence, shoulder to shoulder together, moving toward a common vision to be and make disciples of Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.